We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, August 1st, 2022. I'm going to be honest with you guys. News will probably break before during or right after you listen to this episode we are just a day away from the major league baseball trade deadline and while we have seen a big move already with the cincinnati reds trading starting pitcher luis castillo to seattle we are still waiting word on where juan soto will land after that domino falls there will be a lot of moves made before tuesday's august 2nd deadline at 5 p.m central time We plan on hosting a Twitter space to provide our live reactions when the moves are made. But in this episode, we will recap the White Sox weekend series against Oakland. Okay, they didn't sweep the Athletics. Yes, they did get out homered by them. But the White Sox were able to salvage a series win. Thanks to the San Diego Padres, the White Sox are now just two games back at the Minnesota Twins and one game back at the Cleveland Guardians. It's a weird division race that wouldn't exist if the White Sox played up up to their potential, but alas, that's where we are, and it's some sort of excitement. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Jim Margulis, and hello Jim. The White Sox are part of this excitement, and they didn't sweep the A's like I wanted them to, but they do gain a game on Minnesota. What are your initial thoughts after this A series? It's ugly, you know, facing three unremarkable right-handed starters and they score a total of 10 runs and they get out homered by Oakland. Like none of that is good. Um, None of that is the kind of sustainable success that we thought or not thought, but uh, hoped they would show against, uh, you know, this particular batch of starters. But, you know, I think, Watching the Twins struggle and watching their ERA continue to spike, watching the Guardians just kind of tread water the same way the White Sox are, like looking good for stretches and looking, um, you know, really cash-strapped and thin in stretches. Um, This seems like this is going to be the rest of the season. Just settling for wins, hoping that's good enough, um, and then hoping at some point, uh, you know, over the next two months that... You know, Yohan Mankata improves, Yasmani Grandal improves the balanced lineup a little bit. This version of Eloy Jimenez that has emerged recently is interesting and hope he hangs around. But, um, you know, just you're, you're crossing your fingers for a whole bunch of injury prone guys or hobbled guys or, you know, clearly physically compromised guys to all of a sudden get together. And that's really uncomfortable. Yeah, I agree with you, Jim. I think this is going to go all the way down to the final series of the season where if you remember, folks, the lockout, which feels like five years ago as we have gone through this season, the lockout pushed the opening season series at home against the Minnesota Twins to the final series of the season. And I feel like this division will still be up for grabs into the final series of the 2022 season. As Jim mentioned, the offensive troubles at home. Game one, the White Sox scored three runs. 
Game two, the White Sox scored three runs. Game three, they scored four runs. And I wrote about this at SoxMachine.com in my column about the offense at home is very worrisome for the Chicago White Sox. After Sunday's game, as a team, they are still hitting 241 with a 300 on base percentage. And the big concern is they are slugging just 369 at home. That's a 669 OPS. No, that is not a nice OPS. That it ranks 26th in Major League Baseball. And something that has caught my attention, and we saw with Eloy Jimenez, he did hit a home run to center field that was almost into the right center field gap, Jim. But one of our Patriot supporters wrote to us, uh, and this is this comes from Mark Sambor, and Mark wrote to us, Eno Saris of The Athletic wrote in June that opposite field home runs are down 45% this season. White Sox hitters have increased taking pitches up the middle or opposite field this season. Who or what is driving this, and has this become an organizational approach? It seems like an organizational approach. Like if you listen to Chris Getz talk about young White Sox hitters like Colson Montgomery or Brian Ramos or um, you know even like Jose Rodriguez who needs to generate his home run field to pull uh, to the pull field, but uh, also you know uses the entire field. Like they really do prioritize like. Um, the ability to hit the ball the opposite way just so hitters, I guess, don't sell out, become imbalanced, lose their ability to cover the whole plate. But, you know, as you know, as Mark mentions and as you know, Eno mentioned that the just fly balls are not carrying and it does it is the harder way to leave the yard. Like I'm thinking of like Avi Garcia's entire career, like where he kept stalling at like 19 and 20 homers, eventually breached that that wall, but like it's just a hard way to make a living. And when you're Jose Abreu and you have a whole bunch of different swings in your in your bag, you know, that's that's one thing because he's just a you know, he strikes me as a hitter who hits home runs. Like he that's you know, he uses a whole field, he has a whole bunch of different inside out swings and uh can punch the ball the opposite way when he needs to and beat shifts. And so he can pull the ball in the air, but oftentimes, like, you know, when he gets to two strikes, he's just looking to get runs home and and you know keep the line moving. So there's that, but if he's your leader. Um, you know, it, it strikes me a little bit like, you know, thinking about Gordon Beckham trying to follow in Paul Canerco's footsteps, except Canerco was just kind of a miserable here. He made himself miserable, like during the course of a season, like with his slumps, with his, uh, you know, lack of physical gifts or like athleticism, like he needed every ounce of his, you know, coordination and hitting talent to get by. And so like, he just put himself through the ringer for a season, like Beckham, like, uh, you know, he lost his ability to punish pitches. He's another opposite field guy. So that might be another point in the uh, favor of like, uh, you know, not, not prioritizing enough guys who can pull the ball in the air, but like he, you know, basically what he took away from Canerco is that like you make yourself sick during the season to where you, you lose weight because you don't eat enough. And that's kind of, that's, that's what, you know, watching a Brayu and, and seeing him the leader, just a hard way to make a living. And we're seeing it like, we have seen, you know, when you look at the spray charts, especially early in the year when all those balls die in the warning track or the uh, just short of the warning track to right field and right center. And it's improved a little bit, but not enough. And it does strike me as like, you know, when I watch minor league system, and like one of the reasons I like Brian Ramos is because I watched him pull the ball in the air multiple times in the game. Like, oh, he can do that. Great. You are top five in my list or whatever. You know, he's top seven, but just <laughs> like that's. When a guy can do that, I take notice because it seems like the White Sox do not prioritize that. And maybe, you know, with this, uh, with with the returns of this approach now plummeting, yeah, I think it did work for them in their park because, you know, left field is, or sorry, right field, you know, for left-handed power hitters is very favorable for the White Sox. And since they don't have, they've struggled to generate left-handed power hitters, like having guys who could take care of yeah take advantage of that wind current uh to right field and just kind of poke balls into the visiting bullpen in the goose island like that worked for them but if this is a product of the ball or the humidors all of a sudden sapping that easy cheap homer to right field then yeah they're gonna have to change that i think uh when it comes to either modifying swings or um changing approaches to where they get out in front of the plate more to launch it or they just you know look for guys who can pull the ball. But I, I do think, you know, if this humidor effect or the ball, whatever, you know, whatever's preventing the ball from carrying like it has, 
is here to stay or you know if they go into the winter i think they have to plan around that and find guys who can get more balls in the air unless they you know it's a case like you know Abreu or like Aloy Jimenez when he's healthy to where like they're gifted hitters and they use the whole field and sometimes balls go over the fence that way yeah Andrew Vaughn is someone that comes to my mind Jim while watching he still wants to hit home runs to to right center field and poor Andrew just does not have the strength to do that at this moment he needs to pull the ball in the air to hit home runs at guarantee Ray field because you touch on a lot of points, you know, the humidor could be having an effect. The baseball could be having an effect. And we're here in August. We're still talking about the white Sox not making the adjustment. You know, who has made the adjustment their opponents because they had a lot of home runs at guarantee Ray field. This isn't a stadium problem. This is a White Sox hitter problem. And as I wrote on Sunday, if you didn't get a chance to read that column on SoxMachine.com, we are witnessing the worst White Sox offense at home in this stadium. So that goes all the way back to 1991. This is the lowest team OPS in White Sox history at Comiskey Park 2, U.S. Cellular Field, and now Guarantee Ray Field. And it shouldn't happen with this lineup. And we should be seeing a lot more power for the Chicago White Sox. And no one is more glaring after I did this research on the home woes for the White Sox than Jose Abreu. Now, Jose Abreu hit a home run on Sunday, and he also picked up another hit, so he had a multi-hit game. That's a good sign. He has a whopping gym. Four home runs and 14 RBIs in 51 home games. Let me repeat that. Jose Abreu only has four home runs and 14 RBIs this season at guarantee rate field. If you look at the last three seasons before 2022, in 2021, 77 games at home, Abreu hit 18 home runs and drove in 63 RBIs. 2020, the 60-game season, he played 30 games at home. He had eight home runs and had 25 RBIs. He was on pace for 21 homers and 65 RBIs for a full 162-game season or an 81-game home season. And in 2019, in 79 games at home, Abreu hit 15 homers and drove in 60 RBIs. This is a guy who drives in 60-plus RBIs in in this home ballpark and he plays almost every single home game. And he has only 14 RBIs at 51 games. Mm-hmm. That is incredibly glaring and a big reason why the White Sox offense struggles at home. Because I know everybody wants to say, as Tim Anderson goes, so do the White Sox. I think it's still more how Jose Abreu goes is how the White Sox score. I can say that. Like, I think, you know, Anderson... I, I think it's how Tim Anderson goes when Luis Robert is also there. Because I think they generate a lot of activity and action on the base paths. But when just Anderson and Robert's not there, then yeah, the uh, Breu's lack of contributions is glaring. Yes, very much. And when they get on base, you know, that gives Abreu opportunities to drive in runs. And when the whole offense is not hitting, it's tough for Jose Abreu to drive in runs, but the fact that he only has four home runs at home this year, 51 games, is alarming. Now, here's the good news. It's August, which means we get to see August Jose Abreu. As a reminder, in his career, Jose Abreu is hitting 335 with a 390 on base percentage and slugs 604 in the month of August. He averages seven home runs and 21 RBIs in the month of August for his career. The last two seasons, Jose Abreu has hit at least 10 home runs in the month of August and three straight seasons of driving in 25 or more RBIs. This is a month that Jose Abreu reaches another level. I don't know why. I don't know why he can't pretend June is August or May is August. But when it is August, Jose Abreu hits another gear, Jim. And through 99 games this season, Abreu only has 12 homers and 49 RBI. So he's on pace to play 159 games and only hit 19 homers and drive in 79 RBIs. You mentioned Avisil Garcia. 
I don't think Abreu has turned into a better version of Avisil Garcia, but if he wants another 100 RBI season, Jim, he's going to need a big August again. Do you think we'll see August Jose Abreu in 2022? You know, it's on one hand, it's like dumb to bet against it just because every year he seems to do it. So, <laughs> uh, but you know, I think when we're talking about like Abreu's lack of homers, and I was looking at his like home run or home home runs over the past few years, and like the opposite field thing, like he didn't take too much advantage of that. Like he was good for like three cheap. Homers to right field a year, basically, at, at guaranteed right field. So he's missing those right now, maybe, but it's not really the primary reason. I think the primary reason is more like he's just not pulling the ball as effectively in the year. But, like, you know, when we were talking about, like, Abreu and, and talking about just, you know, how the decline phase we expected when he signed his three-year deal, like, he should be allowed to age, and he's aging pretty gracefully, I think. Like, you know, his power is down a little bit. And, you know, the, the run production, I think, is a little bit out of whack. But he's drawing more walks. He's hitting for an average. Like, the, the average is impressive. Um, you know, he's... It's cool the way he's evolving as a hitter. But it just... It feels like a failure because, you know, Jimenez has been hurt. And Moncada's been absent. Mm-hmm. And Grandal's been absent. Like, all these uh, other power sources have just gone dry. So, when, you know, Abreu is hard-pressed to be on a 20-homer pace for a year, it feels like... Um, you know, the team is failing because of him. But, you know, I just think of our expectations when he signed the three-year deal and, like, hoping that he just wouldn't bottom out. And he hasn't. Like, he's been great. Uh, but it just, you know, I wrote about it before, like, waiting for that, like, you know, how the, the White Sox lineup does not have an error. Like, a true error to Bray. Like, he hasn't had anybody who can take the baton as, like, the 100 RBI guy. And I saw, you know, I got comments saying, like, oh, Andrew Vaughn is the error. Like, not yet. Just because, you know, you mentioned that he's... Uh, you know, his power goes to right center and I'm watching him lately and he's gotten off to a terrible start in the second half. And, you know, he's uh, last 30 games slugging 361 OBP's 273. Yeah. And like he ran into this wow. last year to where like the, you know, we're watching his playing time being managed because of legs, which could be back because those have been related for him. But, you know, if he can't survive a six month grind and I'm watching, you know, his at bats and, He's getting hittable pitches and he's kind of hitting them in the ground or like not getting enough lift, you know, lining out to the left side of the infield and seeing like a lot of bat smashes and uh, disgusted looks like if he pops the ball up in the air to the right side. Like he's not, it, it seems like his swing is not where he wants it to be. And yeah, I'm wondering if just, you know, the the issue that LaRusa has been managing and I've seen like a lot of complaints whenever uh, you know Vaughn's not in the lineup or batting low and saying like you know why is Gavin Sheets batting in in front you know instead of you know Andrew Vaughn and most of those complaints I think are coming from James Fox who wants Gavin Sheets basically buried alive at this point Uh, but when it comes to like Vaughn just like that you know the the combination of his playing time being sporadic and just his reactions at the plate when he's not hitting the pitches he thinks he should hit makes me think like he's just trying to kind of grunt his way through something and like something's preventing him physically from hitting the ball the way he wants to hit it or the way he thinks he should hit it when he pulls a trigger on a pitch in the middle of the zone. And so, you know, as, as the calendar turns to August, like you're thinking, yeah, at least I'm thinking like when you have a guy in your early twenties, you know, uh, closer to 20 than 30, you would think like, okay, this is the guy who is going to be fresh for the second half and be able to help a Bray you. Um, and, and he hasn't been able to do that now in the two years he's been in the majors. And, you know, maybe it's not his fault. Maybe it's a matter of just the White Sox not conditioning him for a six-month season and basically, you know, turning key offensive positions over to him before he's, you know, proven that he just knows how to handle a professional season. But that's the guy I'm looking at as well when it comes to, you know, helping Abreu out in the home run department because this just may be 35-year-old Jose Abreu. And... Given that his you know his OPS plus is like 140 and you know WRC plus is you know in that neighborhood like in the you know his his average is hovering around 300 and the OBPs you know has never been higher like it's it's cool that he's found a way to evolve to remain productive but now somebody else has to pick up the power slack you know if if this doesn't materialize in August like I, I'm thinking it might like very well but I think the White Sox have to prepare for like the August slugging God Abreu not showing up. Like I could see the, uh, you know, maybe him slugging 
470 to 500 because he's hitting 360. <laughs> but uh, just, you know, maybe the home runs show up. But if they don't, the White Sox have to find other sources. Hopefully, you know, Jimenez is one of those guys taking the step forward if he can remain healthy. Yeah, I'm paying more attention to the RBIs for Jose Abreu. The fact that he only has 14 RBIs at home, that that's, yeah, that's the number that blows me away because he's so, he, he just finds ways to drive in runs. And he has. And the White Sox need more runs. And you're right, Jim. It is fair. It's a, a little bit unfair to put Jose Abreu under the microscope. But when nobody else is hitting and you're still two games back of first place in the division, reluctantly, you have to go back to old reliable mm-hmm. and ask old reliable Jose Abreu, can you do this one more time? Like, that's where the White Sox are in right now. And he's not hitting at home. And I, I don't know why, because here's a crazy stat. Jose Abreu has the third best weighted runs created plus on the road in Major League Baseball. He has a 186 weighted runs created plus in road games. That's better than Aaron Judge. <laughs> That's where it's super crazy. So you mentioned all these season stats of where he is. You know, he's at like 140 weighted runs created plus because he's a 100 weighted runs created plus home hitter, but he's a 186 on the road. Like he is having a phenomenal season when he plays road games. I just wish that we were seeing that at home and he could take advantage of what we thought was a very hitter's ballpark at Gary T. Ray Field. And it just kind of breaks my brain on how come the White Sox have stopped hitting at home, but I'm watching the Oakland Athletics continue to put the ball into the seats? Like it just, it was a pretty frustrating series to attend uh, as a fan, just watching how it was like Oakland's got more power than the White Sox. Mm-hmm. Really? Seth Brown? Seth Brown's got more power than Gavin Sheets or Andrew Vaughn? Like, come on, guys. That should not be the case. And on your point about Andrew Vaughn, it's a lot of ground balls, Jim. It is a lot of ground balls. So hopefully Vaughn figures it out. But I I think we could see August Abreu. Texas is on the schedule. Kansas City is on the schedule. Cleveland are places where Abreu has hit pretty well in his career. Those are road games, but we do need to see a mash at home. I'm hoping that Abreu, at least in the month of August, has four home runs and 14 RBIs in home games at guarantee rate field during August. So fingers crossed. If we see August Jose Abreu, we know he has potential to carry the offense. We're also hoping somebody else helps him out too, because he can't just do it by himself. We're going to take a quick break, but coming up next, Jim and I will be chatting about the rumors and gossip leading up to the major league baseball trade deadline. Who could be on the white Sox radar? We discuss next. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. Before we get into the trade talk, let's take a quick look at the American League Central standing situation. The Minnesota Twins are still in first place. They are 53 at 48. They have lost six of their last 10 games. Uh, And thanks to the San Diego Padres, the Padres took two out of three at home against the Minnesota Twins to allow Cleveland and the White Sox to make up ground on the Twins. Cleveland, I thought they played pretty well in St. Petersburg against the Tampa Bay Rays. They're 52 at 49. They're a game back. They're one and a half games back of the wild card. 
And the Chicago White Sox are 51 and 50, two games back, two and a half games back of the wild card. Out of the last 10 games, the White Sox are playing the best out of these three teams. They are six at four in their last 10 games. So the White Sox have had the best record between these three teams since June 10th. So for this week, all teams play seven games. The Minnesota Twins have three games at home against Detroit. However, they have four games at home against the Toronto Blue Jays. And the Blue Jays have been playing good baseball. Cleveland has got three games at home against Arizona. But they got four games at home this weekend against the Houston Astros. And the White Sox have three games at home against the Kansas City Royals, which we'll preview that series in a moment. And then they go on the road as they have four games at Texas. So, Jim, when you look at the week ahead for the teams of the American League Central, it seems that Minnesota, Cleveland, and the White Sox have very winnable series at home from Monday through Wednesday. But we could see some shuffling in the standings this upcoming weekend. Could see some shuffling on the rosters, too, because, you know, just watching... The Twins watching the, uh, I guess, the tweets and reading the writing about the Twins, like pitching staff is falling apart. Like they, as much pitching as the White Sox need, like the Twins need it more. Like they probably need one more arm in the rotation than the White Sox need. They probably need one more arm in the bullpen than the White Sox need. So it seems like, you know, the I'm watching the Twins just because they have the most, they have the greatest needs. They also have a pretty deep farm system to draw upon, especially when it comes to like what teams have been preferring recently with guys further away from the majors, like a ball types. Um, yeah. I think they're, you know, they're, they're stocked enough in that regard. So you know, I think the guardians too are, are generally, they, they like those, um, you know, the producing prep talent and the, uh, you know, they, they do pretty well in the international market too. So I think both teams are equipped to move guys in uh, trades that seem to you know take place a lot in this decade where you see like just a ball types who are 18, 19 years old be on the move. Like the White Sox are shorthanded in that regard. Um, yeah, they, they typically don't have the kind of uh, guys uh, teams want in those moves. So that's why I think they're going to be fascinating to watch. I think if the talent were on hand, you know, or if the teams had to basically dance with who they brought for the rest of the year, if no moves are made, I think the White Sox would eventually win out. But there are some, uh, you know, some impactful moves I think the Guardians and Twins can make. And so, you know, as much as I'm looking ahead in seven games, like I'm looking ahead to the next two days to see what they do at the deadline to, to, I guess, before really projecting what they might do the rest of the week and then, you know, the month ahead. So Steve Stone was on 670 to score this past week, Jim. And in his opinion, this division will be decided by the general managers. Do you agree hmm. with Steve and... Follow-up question to that, as a White Sox fan, does that make you feel comfortable? I guess, you know, I would say it's possible. I don't think it will um, necessarily because I think the, you know, just watching or watching this deadline so far and seeing like how few moves have been made up to this point. Like usually the deadline starts, you know, activity starts like two weeks out, maybe even three weeks out. But you know, Andrew Benintendi was like the first move of consequence. And that was what, five, six days before the deadline. And, and just the, you know, we've seen Luis Castillo move, but you know, just it's taken a long time to come together. And so I don't know if that's a result of fewer sellers, more teams thinking they're in it, or, you know, just teams feeling like they don't need to arm up as much because there are more ways to get in. So they, they don't want to pay as much, you know, for you know players who are on the market, but um, I could see a deadline where a few people move or they, like, there's just less activity. You know, once 5 p.m. passes on Tuesday, you hear all the AL Central general managers say like, well, we had a number of discussions, but just nothing quite came to fruition. And, you know, that's just, you know, we're comfortable with who we have and we're just going to you know, let it play out. And, you know, maybe some guys shake loose in August and uh, we'll see how it happens. But uh, ultimately, we're comfortable with who they have. And. Uh, so I can see a situation where just no moves of consequence are made to where the talent on hand is still what dictates the division. But I can see his point in that, like, you know, I could see the twins pulling off three or four trades. And all of a sudden, if, if, you know, we're talking about like a plus three for the twins or guardians in the trade department over the White Sox, 
then perhaps, yeah, that perhaps that deadline activity does decide the division. But I wouldn't go so far just because it's been so stagnant up to this point. And given that the Guardians are, yeah, given the lack of urgency they showed going into the season in improving roster spots and dire need of improvement, and given that the Twins have been, uh, you know, just, you know, I keep going back to the Wes Johnson thing and just seeing like, you know, do they know what they're doing at the pitching staff or do they feel they have solutions on hand? Because, uh, yeah, I think the reverberations from Johnson going to LSU could be profound and more profound than even, you know, the twins know, like I could just see them not making enough moves because they think they can battle through it. But yeah, that that's, that's kind of where I am just thinking like I can see, you know, maybe one move being made. I can see five moves being made for any of one of these teams, but just given the lack of activity so far, it is kind of shocking just how little has been done. Yeah, since June 10th, again, the Chicago White Sox are 24 and 21. The Guardians are 24 and 23. The Twins are 19 and 22 since June 10th. That's why we have a race here, folks. If the Twins had an inverse, then the White Sox and Guardians may be too far away. But the things about, you know, the thing about the Minnesota Twins and, you know, we're going to talk about some of these players now. And, and a reminder, we're hosting a Twitter space from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. Central Time on Tuesday as we'll share our live reactions to the moves being made. We'll also post this uh, in SoxMachine.com uh, in a post as we try to gather and everyone can comment on all of the trade gossip leading up to the trade deadline. Does White Sox still have a game that night? But, but, you know, going into the trade gossip, and we just saw, you know, the Oakland Athletics. And the Oakland Athletics are not going to pitch Frankie Montas before the trade deadline. He was supposed to be the Sunday starter for Oakland, and we did not see him. And the thing about Frankie Montas is, Jim, we've been hearing Minnesota needing Frankie Montas ever since they signed Carlos Correa. Mm-hmm. And they needed Luis Castillo. And... They haven't made this deal happen. And it's not like this is all of a sudden a need that just came up. No, this has been a need and they still haven't addressed it. So I don't know if teams are in love with what the Minnesota Twins have in their farm system. Now, if you look at Cleveland and you look at the top 10, yeah, Cleveland can make a big move. Do they want to pay for that player, though? Like, that's how it benefits the White Sox here is just how cheap Cleveland runs their operations. If Cleveland was more like the White Sox, I'd be sweating a lot (laughs) because Cleveland has the prospects to make a huge move happen. But, you know, with Frankie Montas, you know, there's, you know, gossip and rumors that the White Sox could still be interested. In the end, if we had to make a guess which I guess if you want to call it prediction, whatever. I think it's hard to make predictions now with how fluid things are in trade talks. Do you think Frankie Montas ends up in the American League Central or do you think he lands with another team outside the division? I would, you know, if I had to bet, I would say the field versus the AL Central just because of numbers. And also, like, as you mentioned, like the lack of activity that we've seen so far, like I keep thinking, you know, back to, um, you know, the Matt Olson trade and thinking like, God, I hope the guardians don't get him. Like it makes so much sense for the guardians to trade for Matt Olson. Yep. And, you know, look, he's leading the national league in doubles, 20 homers. You know, the, he's having a classic Matt Olson season and it's for the Braves, not the guardians, even though they could really use him at first base. So, uh, you know, I, I've, you know, Montas makes a lot of sense for the twins. Like, as you've said, like one of those starters been watching it and just, I keep thinking it's going to happen and it doesn't happen. I think like the Josh Donaldson move is like the one move where I was like, oh, I hope the twins don't get him. Hope the twins don't get him. And then just all these other suitors fell apart and he fell to the twins. And if you have teams, you know, that are really aggressive about it, like the, the Mariners really were aggressive for Luis Castillo. Like, I don't think the twins seem to have that appetite. So if there are a few sell, if it is like a seller's market, because there just are fewer sellers. I, I could see the AL Central being empty-handed, but like yeah, I'm thinking back to the the winter, like Carlos Rodon with his market, and thinking like the Twins made a lot of sense for Rodon uh, because he was going to sign a shorter deal. He wasn't going to cost 130 to 150 million, and they didn't want to do it at the Brio. So like that would be that high impact starter. Like I could see Rodon somehow going to the Giants. Like that that's that's maybe the move like I'm bracing for. 
just because we saw like Carlos Correa go to the, the the Twins on a short deal, and you know Rodon would be you know a rental, and hmm. you know they, he wouldn't have a qualifying offer attached because of the trade, so like he might not cost all that much, and he could be a high impact starter that they need, and so that's I think more than Montas, I think Rodon is the one I'm kind of watching and thinking like oh, it makes a lot of sense for the Twins because he made so much sense before. Thanks, I hate it. Uh, let's yeah. not have that happen. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think Frankie Montas ultimately lands with the New York Yankees. And I get, and as Jim mentioned, while that would be great for the White Sox, there's still someone like Carlos Rodon available to the Minnesota Twins, but they need more than one starter. Uh, I, I'm surprised they're not in for Jose Quintana. And we'll go to Quintana here. Uh, as Bob Nightingale wrote in his Sunday column that the White Sox are still in the hunt for Jose Quintana along with the New York Yankees and the Toronto Blue Jays. Do you like this idea, Jim? How do you think they would use him if they acquired him? I like Quintana. Like I've, I've, I've always been a fan and I'm happy to see him doing well with the pirates, but that's one where it depends on the cost because I could see him going to like, you know, a lefty pitcher pitching half of his games in PNC park. And I just automatically think of that huge left center gap at PNC Park and think like, oh, well, you know, if he's uh, throwing his cutters and working inside, like just there's no reward or there's less of a reward for pulling the ball against a guy like Quintana and PNC Park. It could be like a, just a great marriage of pitcher and uh, ballpark. And so now I'm looking at his splits and yeah, his uh, OPS at home is hundred points lower than it is away. Uh, ERA at home, 2.42 away, 522. So that's, that's why, you know, my, my first thought was like, it feels like, you know, he should keep pitching for Pittsburgh because they can use a guy like him and he can use that kind of comfort pitching for a team like the Pirates and he can make them a lot more watchable for fans who desperately need like just, you know, a reason to go to the park and enjoy going to the park. Um, but yeah, he just, when it comes to the White Sox, like, you know, we talked about this before just, you know, and I mentioned this too on the, the score radio appearance I was on just saying like, you know, guys like Quintana, guys like Ian Happ, who don't really project to make like a huge impact are more like they cover a roster spot well, but they don't really elevate a team's chances in a short series. Like Happ has a history of disappearing for a month or two at a time. Like I wouldn't want to see the White Sox fork over resources for guys who help cover roster spots. Like I think it's either go big or go home. You know, just get a guy who can, you know, is... You know, like Luis Castillo, like the price that the, the Mariners paid, the White Sox could not pay. Like they don't have that kind of talent on hand to pay that price. But if they acquired a guy like him for like, you know, I don't know, Colson Montgomery or like maybe maybe Coloss more than Montgomery, but just like I'd get it. Like I'd get that he just he helps so much, you know, when he's in the rotation. Quintana, I don't think he helps. Like I don't think he helps measurably over like hoping Lance Lynn improves or hoping, uh, you know, hoping Lucas Giolito can get back on track because when the postseason rolls around, I don't think I'd feel great about Quintana making a start. Like if he has to start in Houston or if he has to start, uh, even at, at uh, guaranteed rates, just with the way the ball can travel out to left and the way we've seen, uh, opposing teams, uh, hit the ball out to left. So yeah, I, I like him as a person and I'm glad to see him doing well, but I don't see it transferring cleanly to the White Sox. All right. So let's go back to Oakland here. We talked about Frankie Montas. We don't think Frankie Montas, is going to land in the American League Central. Now, it was reported by Scott Merkett of MLB.com that Luis Robert was in the Players' Clubhouse after the White Sox win on Sunday. Hopefully, that's good news, and that means that Luis Robert is healthy and will play on Monday. Or it could also mean that Luis Robert's in Chicago because he needs more tests. I am trying to be optimistic here, and I am hoping that Luis Robert is in the lineup on Monday against the Kansas City Royals. Now, there's Ramon Liriano, mm -hmm. and he could be a target if Robert is in Chicago for more tests or if Robert does come back, but there's bad news. Adam Engel's not going to be available for the rest of the season. While he's not impressive offensively, he can play defense without concern. He's also under player control into 2024. He's also two years younger than Adam Engel. Do you like the idea of possibly Ramon Liriano being a target for the White Sox? It's okay. Um, that would be a matter of like, if he cost very little, sure. Why not? Um, just because, um, 
he does help. He does play a good outfield. Uh, I like, I love watching him throw. He hits the occasional homer. Like he's not hopeless against righties. And I'm looking at like his recent splits because his career splits are fine against righties. Uh, this year he's taken a hit. Um, but we just watched him pop a ball in the left field seats. Like he can lift the ball a little bit. Uh, but you know, when uh, the Rays got David Peralta, that was the guy I was kind of holding out hope for just because he plays a good left field. He could probably play him in right field. Uh, he's been lifting the ball more. Lefty, you can take advantage of that, you know, right favorable right field to left-handed hitters. And I thought, like, he would be a great rental. Like, he would be a great addition. Like, Loriano helps. And if it's him or nothing, I would take him. But, like, you know, like you said, like, there's a lot of overlap with Adam Angle. I think you get to a point where, like, Maybe you swap out, you know, going forward, like he's the angle guy on the roster and you kind of non-tender or trade him, you know, angle to somebody else for a change of scenery guy. But yeah, I just don't see, I don't see the upside. Like, you know, I mentioned with the, just kind of hoping for impact, like helps defensively, helps, you know, with the occasional power, can't hit lefties, but just he, there's a lot of overlap with angle, a lot of overlap with the guys they'd rather see playing like, you know, Jimenez against lefties. So yeah, just... Not quite the impact I'd be hoping for from an outfield addition. I agree. If everyone is healthy, like if Robert is playing on Monday, Jim, there's no need for Lariano. But if Robert is not healthy, or if all of a sudden the White Sox are really concerned about backup defensive options in the outfield because Adam Engel's status is still uncertain, I understand why he could be a target. Yeah. Like the he, defense is nice. Yeah. Yeah, it would be nice to have someone who can actually play right field without having to hold my breath every fly ball that's hit into right field. All right, uh, someone that I still like, I still like A.J. Puck. I think he makes a lot of sense for the White Sox, but he's under team control for a while. Oakland's got a lot of cost-controlled players, and that makes them more expensive. Anyone else in the Oakland roster that caught your attention that you think the White Sox could be interested in or you would want the White Sox to be interested in? Uh, the one guy you know that kind of checks all their boxes, at least before this year, is Lou Trevino. Um, you know, righty who gets grounders and strikeouts. This year's been rough for him, but would not mind him as like a buy-low type. If they think like they, they see something amiss that they think they can fix, and I imagine that he would cost very little because ERA is pretty much sky high and he's been... I think he had COVID briefly. He had some struggles early in the year. So I think his ERA has been coming down gradually, but he's not quite at full power. Like if they got somebody like him for, for a player to be named later, I think that would be like a, you know, I wouldn't say like, you know, maybe an impactful addition, but you know, we talked about it before and when it comes to the bullpen additions and thinking like, I don't want to see the White Sox go after David Robertson. Like if $30 million can fix their high leverage issues, I don't trust them to spend 35 million in, in, you know, residual salary and, you know, talent it requires that to acquire that player. Like I'd rather them look for this year's Ryan Tapera of somebody who is, you know, a decent mid leverage candidate with the ability maybe to cover more. And I think Trevino, he's been, He's been a high leverage guy in the past, has closed games out in the past. I think this year has been kind of a, a wash up to this point, but you know, maybe a change of scenery helps him a little bit because he does the other things the White Sox like. And I could see a case where like, yeah, they, they realize like, oh, sinkers, strikeouts, uh, we can fix them. And I'd rather see that than like a David Robertson type who, you know, like with, like with Craig Kimbrell last year, they might be paying for somebody who's already done his best work this year. So I like the Lou Trevino. You want a Ryan Tapera type. Let's go into a rumor that's been reported by both major radio stations in Chicago. ESPN 1000's David Kaplan and 670 The Score's Bruce Levine have been tweeting about the White Sox interest in Chicago Cubs reliever Michael Givens. Now, Givens this year has a 2.66 ERA and 40 and two-thirds innings. He struck out 51 to 19 walks. He has a 159 ERA+. plus. And that's coming from baseball reference. Does that fit your Ryan Tapera need, Jim? Yeah, I, I think so. Like, yeah, you know, again, depending on cost, like uh, when it comes to like the cost, you know, the Tapera cost Bailey Horn, who uh, the White Sox really didn't figure on missing and, and haven't missed up to this point. He's been decent in relief, you know, for, you know, high A and double A in the Cubs system, but those guys are theoretically replaceable. So yeah, Givens would be, you know, 
theoretically fine. Like he's had home run problems in the past, but that was Baltimore. Like, you know, when, when Baltimore, there's a lot of homers to give up there. He also had some successful years in Baltimore in a tough place to pitch. So uh, in a tough division. So yeah, I, I think he'd be fine uh, along the lines of, you know, medium leverage. And maybe if he had to pitch Nathan Ing in a tie game, you wouldn't hate seeing him out there. If a guy like Graveman needed a break or Kelly's unavailable, uh, that would fit that, that, that mold well enough. All right, so back to Carlos Rodon. We talked about Rodon being a good target for the Twins. Do you think the White Sox could be interested in Carlos Rodon and maybe Jock Peterson? The problem with Peterson is he's now on the injured list, so he won't be available until sometime in mid-August to play for anyone. But the Giants are entertaining moving both. Could a reunion happen? Well, assuming Peterson comes back from his concussion uh, well enough, I wouldn't... That's a case where, like, you know, you, you think about the Braves and what they did last year and just adding all sorts of guys who might be able to uh, get hot. Like, they did that with, you know, uh, they did that two times over with Peterson and Eddie Rosario. And we saw, you know, uh, Rosario especially go nuts in the postseason uh, after doing very little for uh, Cleveland. Uh, who, and Cleveland was hoping for that same kind of uh, impact that he made with the Twins. Didn't happen, but he goes to the Braves, gets hot. So I wouldn't mind seeing, you know, Peterson on the same idea in terms of just he's done it before. When he gets to the postseason, he typically does not look overwhelmed by the stage. So sure. Um, Rodon, like, I just think, you know, the price will be too high, especially like, you know, if the Giants are like so many other teams and want that younger talent that the Guardians tend to have or that the, the Twins tend to have that the White Sox don't really, uh, you know, they've gotten better in the international system, but I think, you know, they're still struggling to get interesting 18 and 19 year olds. The guys who tend to materialize are in their early twenties. And for some reason that's like really old <laughs> for, uh, you know, teams nowadays, like the yeah, 22 isn't as young as it used to be. All right. So we got this question from one of our Patreon supporters, Doug Wirtz. and Doug is throwing this trade hypothetical at us, Jim. He wrote any chance you see a trade for AJ Pollock and Lurie Garcia to the Yankees for Joey Gallo and maybe one of their top 15 to 20 prospects. I don't see any way you stop Tony from constantly using Lurie Garcia unless you trade him. Joey Gallo is basically a gold glove right fielder. That's that's Doug's uh, backing of this trade idea. What do you think about this hypothetical, Jim? Well, I mean, I don't think, you know, the, the Yankees have no use for Garcia. They have no use for Pollock. And Pollock's a contract, you know, he's basically got a, you know option to hang around and collect an extra 10-plus uh, million next year. So I don't see them having any trade value. But I've seen Gallo's name come up a few times, especially since, you know, with the Andrew Benintendi trade, basically paves the way for Gallo's way out of town. And I don't like the idea of Gallo. Like, just... I don't like watching him play. So part of it's just like, man, it's just, he's a hard guy to watch play. Like he draws walks, um, you know, plays a good right field. Like I'll, I'll give him that. Like, you know, the, the metrics are kind of mixed on him. DRS really likes him. UZR is lukewarm on him and outs above average really thinks he's plummeted. So he's been a little bit of a mixed bag defensively, but when it comes to his offense, like I, I've seen the argument made like, well, as bad as he's been playing, he's better than Pollock, but he's basically replacement level. And part of me wonders if like the way Gallo plays, which is power and no contact and the 40% strikeout rate as of late and extremely shiftable, like one of the most shiftable players in the league. If wins above replacement is, you know, basically, is it adequate at capturing a guy like Gallo? Is it like saying like when it looks at like his component stats, like, oh, the ISO is good. The walk rate's good. He's contributing. But like when you look at just how idiosyncratic he is when it comes to his flaws being so pronounced in terms of low BABIP and also just a low batting average because he strikes out so much. I can see like just the, you know, the, the algorithms not envisioning a guy like him. And, you know, when you see him being like, oh, he's 0.5 wins above replacement, whereas Pollock is below replacement. And just, you know, he'd be improving on, upon so many players in the White Sox uh, lineup right now. It's like, yeah, there's that. But, you know, one, I don't like 
using replacement level guys as an improvement over below replacement level guys. Like, I don't think that is felt. Like, we've seen them do that with the DHs and such. Like, well, Yonder Alonso was so terrible that Nomar Mazzara has to be able to help. And then he doesn't help because he's basically, you know, when, when you're underwater, I don't think... Uh, barely treading water is felt as an as an addition. I think you have to be like above average or slightly above average to be uh, for that to be understood. But you know, I also just you know when it comes to you know wins above replacement, yeah, you know, I can see you know the the argument being on paper like yeah he you know he helps. But when you read the article like Gallo and like the headspace he's in, and everybody's saying like this is a broken guy, and and Gallo sounds miserable when he's playing. You know, maybe a trade out of New York helps him, but I could see it being an off-season project where he needs to get in a better situation, he needs to kind of go back to a low-pressure place to work out his kinks. And going from, you know, a situation where, uh, you know, he kind of just uh, flunked out of the Yankees and then going to another postseason team that needs instant impact from him and they don't get it and they, he strikes out and he gets booed, like, I don't see that being an improvement. And the White Sox typically aren't great at fixing guys either, so... I could see, you know, him coming over the White Sox, striking out in 15 of 21 plate appearances, and then Larusa not wanting to play him, and then just being an argument of we're like, well, you gotta, you know, play Gallo if you get him, and like, you know, Larusa being like, I'm not seeing nothing, and I can see taking Larusa's side as much as I don't want to do it. So, I don't see him being a good fit for this team. If they got him for nothing, sure, like if they just claimed him. Mm-hmm. Give him a shot. Uh, you know, just you know, maybe see if there's just he gets hot again because he does get those hot streaks. But I could just see Larusa not wanting to play him, and also you know Gallo giving him no reason to play him over the course of like a two week sample. And what do you do with that? Yeah, Doug, I don't think the White Sox have to make a trade for Joey Gallo. I think the Yankees are going to DFA him if they can't find a a deal. And there's other teams that are interested like San Diego and Milwaukee have been reported interested in Joey Gallo. But I think San Diego's only interested if they can't get a Juan Soto deal done, if they can't get a deal done with the Cubs for Wilson Contreras and Ian Happ. Like that's like their plan D right now to address the outfield. So if they don't make a trade and dumping Joey Gallo by Tuesday. Joey Gallo, I think, is going to get DFA'd by the New York Yankees, and he'll be available to anyone to sign for the yeah. rest of the season. Yeah, I could just, you know, when it comes to reading the stuff about him and, like, him, he sounds broken, and uh, I could just see the White Sox acquiring him and then him doing nothing and just being like, he said he was broken. <laughs> he said he was not in a great shape. Like, you know, he told us this, and and so that's why... You know, just with the White Sox not, you know, being able to develop their own guys or and not being able to like maximize their own hitting talent. I don't see them, you know, taking a guy like Gallo who's so fundamentally off his game and, and being able to solve him. Like it's kind of like I can fix him. No, you can't. <laughs> well, Jim, do you expect the White Sox to make a move before the deadline? I think so. Even if it's just for a reliever, like a Lou Trevino or Michael Givens type. I can see it, but I'm hoping for more, but with, you know, Naquin going and David Peralta going, like I can see just the prices now getting too high for anybody who might make a concentrated difference. I agree. I think the White Sox may add to their bullpen and if they do add some like Ramon Lariano. Then I have more concerns about <laughs> what the future holds for the White Sox outfield in 2022 is Luis Robert. Okay. We're hoping to find out later on Monday night, and hopefully he's in uniform and back playing for the Chicago White Sox. Jim and I are going to take our last break. We're going to talk about that upcoming series for the White Sox as the Kansas City Royals come into town. But we'll also chat about Jim watching the White Sox AAA affiliate in Nashville after a quick word from our sponsor. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. 
Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. And the next thing we're going to chat about is that the Charlotte Knights were in Jim's backyard. Not literally, but close as they were playing the Nashville Sounds. And we were hoping that Jim would be able to report on Luis Robert, but he only played in one game. And the other games he had a cold and wasn't available to play. But Jim, how was watching the Charlotte Knights in Nashville? It was, you know, okay. Like just... You know, it was, you know, watching Jake Berger get back into action after his time off, watching, you know, Lenin Sosa at a new level. Like, there were some novel things that I hadn't seen from them before, so it was good to see. Like, you know, Sosa, I liked when the White Sox called him up, but, you know, he does have a history of, you know, having rough adjustments to new levels, and I think we're seeing it here, at least with, with Charlotte. He's been... I think his floor is higher. I think that's good news is his floor is higher as a, a player who's struggling when he's, you know, trying to figure out the league and trying to, you know, bring pitchers into the zone a little bit better at it than he was a year ago or a year or two ago. So that's cool. But, you know, he did seem like any fastball he wanted to pound. Like just, you know, anytime he saw it, anytime he read it, he was going for it. Even if it was like up in the zone, chasing things out. Like I think he's trying to, He's applying what made him successful in Birmingham to Charlotte. And right now they're, I think, teasing him out of the zone a little bit too much for him to, um, you know, capitalize on that. But the good news is, you know, we've seen him like have a rough one or two months in new level and then figure it out. So like, there's no reason for concern yet. Just, I think if we're hoping for him to be like a supernova in the Southern league, who all of a sudden cleanly transfers it to the White Sox, like that's not quite going to happen. I think he's going to need you know, good, solid, you know, countant for like, you know, maybe going to next year, like good two or three months in Charlotte next year to see where he is and go from there. But, um, you know, Berger looked a little bit off, like as he comes back from his, you know, hand issue and then he missed a little bit of time too. But, you know, once uh, Luis Roberts uh, was ruled out for the weekend, I realized like, that's oh, probably better off in, in, you know, watching the White Sox against Oakland, seeing what they're doing. So I didn't miss the last two games. Like I was really hoping to see, Robert play center field and just see what his routes look like and see just, yeah, they did look mm-hmm. rough. Like that's one thing Rick Hahn said is it seemed to affect him more in the field than at the plate. And yeah, like he, he was playing some uncharacteristically poor, you know, shaky, wobbly, whatever you want to call it center field. And I think that would have been instructive to just watch him pursue some fly balls, see like how good his first step is. Uh, Cause you know, as, untrained as my eye is as a scout like i'm not, i don't have a scouting background like that's one thing you can see in person is just first steps seeing like are they getting to the place where you think they should in the field uh if not why um that that's something i enjoy watching in person and it's kind of a disappointment the one thing that was that that was fun was watching uh dylan file um he is a reliever he's been a starter for the the sounds in the brewer system and it's fun when you watch something in person and see like, oh, his arm speed is way slower on curveballs. Like watching him from the side and realize like, <laughs> I know when he's throwing a curveball. And then like watching him, you know, watching the, the the Knights slowly figure that out too. Like I think they were telling each other in the dugout, like after the first thing he pitched three innings, uh, they, they took some ugly swings against some curveballs and then realized like, oh, his arm is a lot slower. Like changeups, his arm speed was fine. Fastball, yeah, it matched his fastball speed. But like I could tell when he's throwing a curveball from the side. And if I could tell, uh, then I could see them eliminating that pitch too. And so it was neat that I, I enjoy when I can actually see something like that. Nice. I only watched one game on the stream, which was the game that Luis Robert played. And I have to tell you, Jim, Yohan Ibar, no idea why he's on the 40 man. Yeah, they're, I mean, they use 10 relievers or 10 pitchers on Saturday. Like, uh, it's it's kind of a mess there. And, and you know, I, I know that, uh, you know, Jeff Cohen and his reporting on, on Charlotte, you know, talking to Matt Zaleski and such, like, you know, we, we talk about Wes Johnson and the Twins carefully laid pitching plans. Like, that's, you know, which Indiana Jones uh, movie was it where he had to, like, figure out the blocks on the floor and which one to step on? Uh, was that Last oh, Crusade? No. I, that, I think that sounds familiar. Yeah, I think it was Last Crusade. But, like, that's that's what that reminds me. Yeah, Matt Selesky's every day is like that for him. Figuring out, like, a, <laughs> where, you know, where am I going to plummet through to my to a pit of snakes? You know, <laughs> watching this. And watching it on, uh, on on Friday was Yaxel Rios, who threw, like, half of his pitches for strikes and, uh, you know, was throwing 97 but couldn't locate it at all. Like, that, that's where he fell through the floor. And every game for Charlotte feels like that where – one guy goes wrong, and yeah, Ibar is at the center of a lot of it. 
yeah, he's not good. I don't know why he's on the 40-man roster, but that's your uh, Charlotte Knights update. And again, if you want to listen to more about the Chicago White Sox farm system, again, listen to the Future Sox podcast and subscribe to their podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. They have new episodes released on Tuesdays. All right, the Kansas City Royals are coming into town to end this homestand for the White Sox. They are currently 40-62. and 62. They won on Sunday thanks to a big home run from Salvador Perez. In their last 10 games, the Royals have lost six of them, and the season series with the White Sox is tied four games apiece. Your bitching problems for this series starting on Monday, August 1st. This is a 7.10 p.m. Central Time start. It's Brad Keller against Michael Kopech. On Tuesday, August 2nd, also 7.10 p.m. Central Time, two hours after the trade deadline, it's Brady Sainer for the Royals against Lucas Giolito. Wednesday's getaway day for the White Sox, and this game is played at 1.10 p.m. Central Time, is Chris Bubich, the left-hander, against Lance Lynn. So, Jim, how will the White Sox disappoint me in this series? Well, we've seen uh, Brady Singer deliver one of his best starts against the White Sox this year. Yeah, I mean, Keller and Singer are in that line of, like, gettable right-handed starters who the White Sox have not been able to get. And, you know, Keller's credible, Singer's credible. I mean, like, they're fine, but, like, their numbers are unremarkable because sometimes teams get them, and the White Sox just haven't been able to get them. So, I mean, like, you have Kopech who's been... He's been toughing out some starts where he doesn't have his best stuff. Uh, you know, the, the, the strikeouts have been drying up on him a little bit and he's been having to kind of figure out how to get by from start to start. We've seen Giolito just, you know, he looks underpowered. We've seen Lynn just lose it for an inning at a time. So there are a lot of ways to be frustrated this, this, uh, series. So as much as I'd like to see the, you know, White Sox frustrate the Royals and, 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 you know, kind of drive them to a, you know, Whit Merrifield's end by the trade deadline, like, and, and see them shed guys and, uh, turn it over to a completely new lineup and, and, and using that Toronto series, a little bit of a sneak preview for uh, going full rebuild and going full uh, teardown uh, and, and relying on their internal players. Like, I think this is a series, like maybe the last series of the year where uh, the Royals can be that pesky team that just has okay right hand pitching and, and uh, yeah, content, enough contact guys who can, uh, frustrate pitchers who are not getting strikeouts the way they used to. Uh, as we are recording this, Sunday Night Baseball is wrapping up, and there is definitely hug watch going on in the Chicago Cubs dugout with Wilson Contreras. So that might be one of those moves, as I told you in the intro, that there could be breaking news going on. Uh, but with this White Sox-Royals series, yeah, Tuesday is the game that I have circled where I may get angry. Like, Lucas Giolito needs to pitch better. And Brady Sainer at times has pitched really well against the Chicago White Sox. I just feel like in this three games, and to come full circle here, Jim, I I, I could be wrong, but I don't think 10 total runs is going to win this series for the White Sox. Like, the offense needs to come around. They need to have a good night against Brad Keller. They need to put up, you know, three or four runs on Brady Sainer to give some backing to Lucas Giolito. That still may not be enough with how poor he's been pitching. And they got to beat up Chris Bubich on Wednesday. Mm -hmm. Like, if they win this series, winning two out of three, fine. You were right. They went four and two when I expected them to go six and zero during this homestand. But this is one of those series that could be really tricky. And while we are feeling better about the White Sox and a little bit excited that they're still in this divisional race, this also could be an opportunity where they just go splat and they go face first into the pavement and they lose this series. And then we just throw our hands up and be like, well, they went three and three in a six game homestand against two last place teams. Yeah, well, yeah. When we talked about the Oakland series and we talked about, you know, just how the White Sox theoretically had the edge in home run hitting. And sure enough, the A's have now leapfrogged uh, the White Sox. They're now 24th in homers with 90. The White Sox are 26th with 88. Uh, now, in a second consecutive series, they're playing the team that's uh, below them in homers. So the White Sox have 88. They're 26th. The Royals are 27th with 82. So I guess the... The good news is that I wouldn't expect the Royals to out homer the White Sox by seven, <laughs> and, uh, and and uh, you know leap ahead of them in the in this particular column. But yeah, it's another one where 
theoretically they should be able to outpower the team they're playing, but if they don't, yeah, it just it it, it speaks to um, you know their issues against teams that actually are equipped to hit the home run. Well, hopefully we do see the White Sox hit some homers against the Royals this week. Hopefully they sweep them, but at the very least win this series because Cleveland's got an easy series. Minnesota's got an easy series at home. Both of those teams have difficult series where the White Sox go on the road to face the Texas Rangers squad uh, that's been struggling as of late. So the White Sox have it easier over the weekend. And hopefully next week on Monday, where we're talking about the White Sox even closer to the Minnesota Twins or knock on wood, maybe in first place in the American League Central. How nice would that be? Let's make it happen, White Sox. We're getting a little excited for you. Have a good showing against the Kansas City Royals. And Jim and I will be recapping that series on Wednesday night and preview the upcoming series against the Texas Rangers. So you'll have that new podcast episode there. And of course, we'll have the White Sox wake up calls after each of these games against the Kansas City Royals this week. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Again, thank you guys so much for listening. Remember, we will have the live Twitter space from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. Central Time as trades come in during the deadline unless we get breaking news about a Chicago White Sox move made before 2 p.m. I'll fire up that Twitter space. And again, you can follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine and follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. And if you're wondering where P.O. Sox is, that'll be, uh, since this uh, one ran along with all the trade trade deadline talk and all the... uh, uh, various White Sox news. Uh, I'm going to be running that on Sox Machine. All right, excellent. So that's something to look forward to for our Patreon supporters. And speaking of Patreon supporters, whether you're new to Sox Machine or a bit of longtime lurker, Patreon support helps us a great deal at SoxMachine.com to produce all of our content. And if you enjoy your work and you want more, sign up at Patreon.com slash SoxMachine, where our Patreon supporters, they get more. They get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of the podcast and website. When we have new Sox Machine swag, they are the first ones to receive it. Monthly plans start at $2, and you can save with an annual subscription. Again, sign up at Patreon.com slash SoxMachine. You can subscribe to the Sox Machine Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. And the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.